ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Friday the 23rd of February. I'm Rachel Mealy, coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yagara people. Today, South Australia contemplates a $5 billion desalination project to deliver water to the state's far north. And one small step for space exploration. A private company lands a spacecraft on the moon for the first time. What will we learn from it? Houston, Odysseus has found his new home. Uh, What an outstanding effort. I know this was a nail biter, but we are on the surface and we are transmitting. And uh, welcome to the moon. First today, police in two states are grappling with missing persons cases. A man is in custody over the disappearance of a former television presenter and his partner in Sydney's eastern suburbs. And in Victoria, officers are narrowing the search for Ballarat woman Samantha Murphy, who hasn't been seen since she went out for a run earlier this month. Reporter Gavin Coote has been following these cases and joined me a short time ago. Gavin, what's the latest with this case in Sydney? Well, man is now in custody after the Sydney couple disappeared from the city's eastern suburbs early this week. 26-year-old television presenter Jesse Baird and his partner, 29-year-old flight attendant Luke Davies, they were last officially seen on Monday evening. Now, police have held grave concerns for the couple after finding a significant amount of blood at Mr Baird's Paddington home on Wednesday. Earlier that day, a worker found bloodied items belonging to the couple in a skip bin in a different part of the city, in Cronulla in the city's south. Now, since then, New South Wales policeman Bo Lamar has handed himself into police. Officers had been trying to find him. They've seized a number of items from a home that was searched in Sydney's inner west overnight. And police say the 29-year-old has now presented himself to Bondi Police Station and he's since been transferred to Waverley Police Station where investigations will continue. And there's been an apparent breakthrough in the disappearance of Samantha Murphy. What do we know there? Yeah, this is a case that there's been a lot of attention around. She failed to return from a jog three weeks ago. She was last seen leaving her home on the 4th of February Police are now saying more parties are likely to be involved in her disappearance and they believe it's unlikely that she is alive. Detectives are narrowing in on an area of bushland close to Mount Clear. Now, that's south of the Ballarat CBD. This is an area that was covered extensively in the first week of the search, but at the time police were looking for Samantha and her phone Now, Detective Acting Superintendent Mark Hatt says this time they're looking for smaller items or more intricate details to try to determine what happened on the day. Unfortunately, um, given the the time and the fact we've found no trace of her, we do have severe concerns and and are very doubtful that she's still alive. Based on our elimination process, um, we do think that another party has been involved, whether it be one person or a number of people. So again, anyone that has seen suspicious activity, whether it be cars or people in the area on the morning, we would hope they call Crime Stoppers, please. Detective Acting Superintendent Mark Hatt and earlier our reporter Gavin Coote. 
US tech company NVIDIA is making global headlines after posting an extraordinary increase in profits as it rides what analysts are describing as the biggest thing since the internet. The company makes computer chips that have been used in artificial intelligence systems. Investors piled into the stock, increasing its market valuation by $250 billion, giving the firm the biggest one-day gain by any company in Wall Street history. But is this part of another dot-com bubble and is it about to burst? Reporter David Taylor has more. If you've noticed a green sticker on your PC or laptop, it means NVIDIA's computer hardware or graphics card for the tech-minded is inside. NVIDIA started off by making the chips that go into your PC that allow you to play games really fast. So if you're running Fortnite at, say, 30 or 60 frames a second, it's probably because you have an NVIDIA chip in your PC making that happen. Mark Pesci is the Honorary Associate in Digital Cultures at the University of Sydney. NVIDIA opened its doors for business in 1993. The power of its hardware makes artificial intelligence, developed by Tesla, Facebook, Amazon, Google and Microsoft, possible. But it also means there's enormous demand for it. They make the best chips for gamers. And they have for a long time, but a few years ago, they realized that the chips for gamers were also really good at AI. The tech giant made $22.1 billion of revenue in the December quarter, up 265% on last year. Here's NVIDIA's Chief Financial Officer, Colette Cress, speaking at the results announcement in the United States. For fiscal 2024, revenue was $60.9 billion and up 126% from the prior year. The world has reached a tipping point of new computing era. On Wall Street, shares in NVIDIA closed up 16.5% to $785 US dollars, the surge giving the tech giant a market valuation of $1.94 trillion US dollars. That's $25 billion larger than the gross domestic product of Australia. Uh, because they not only smashed their profit, and there were a lot of analysts who were saying it's impossible for NVIDIA to even make the projected profits this term, they smashed them by 700%. There is such demand for the chips they're making and they're in such short supply and they are making those chips as fast as they can right now that they are literally printing money on silicon. The key to NVIDIA's recent success is the explosion in demand for Microsoft products like ChatGPT that use the chips. But can that last? especially when many of the big tech giants looking to develop their AI are looking to make their own chips with the same computing power. So NVIDIA will not have the market entirely to itself, but the market is growing so fast that probably doesn't matter. But independent analyst Evan Lucas has some concerns about the company's outlook. AI is being shown, as they refer to it in the US, as being the third wave. Computers being the first, the internet being the second. This is the third wave in technology. And the leaps that are happening at the moment, I have not been seen since the development of the internet. And that's that's why the excitement is still there. Not only that, NVIDIA are showing that they're not only are they delivering, they are smashing expectations, they are over-delivering on product. The expectation going forward is still basically ramping at three figures percent going forward. So all, all of that is why, yes, I am excited. It does... You know, there is an argument that they are becoming a concentrated provider, but that's what we have seen over the last 
you know, 10, 15 years in tech spaces that the big, big behemoths end up not only winning but continuing to get even bigger than they are. My concern would be that you'd have a supply interruption like COVID created, that you'd have an interruption where maybe the chip technology started to fail. If the chip technology was to fail and wasn't able to, to deal with the, the processing requirements AI needs, that would be a individual structural problem that NVIDIA would suffer from. They're my concerns. Independent analyst Evan Lucas ending that report by David Taylor. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. South Australia is spending $100 million to investigate whether a massive desalination plant on the state's Air Peninsula is worth the money. If it's built, the plant would cost $5 billion and send desalinated water 600 kilometres north to create a reliable water supply for copper mines in the state's far north. Many desalination plants across the country were built in times of drought and have been barely used. So what makes this proposal so appealing for South Australia? Angus Randall reports. It would be the biggest infrastructure investment in South Australia's history, a $5 billion desalination plant pumping water 600 kilometres to supply the state's desert copper mines. Peter Malinowskis is the state's Premier. We want to maximise the ability for BHP, along with other miners, to be able to mine the critical minerals, the important commodities that will underpin global decarbonisation into the future. At full capacity, the Northern Water Project could provide 260 megalitres of desalinated water per day. That's around 100 Olympic swimming pools. The state government is spending $100 million on a feasibility study to work out if a desal plant on the Air Peninsula in South Australia's west is worth it. Mining giant BHP will contribute $77 million. Its copper mine at Olympic Dam will be the biggest private benefactor if the plant goes ahead. Peter Malinowskis says the government investment will be paid back through mining royalties. In order to be able to produce copper, you need a lot of water, which means if we want BHP and others to produce a lot more copper, we need to get them a lot of water. Jeff Churchett is the mayor of Tumby Bay Council. He's excited to see the proposed plant in his district. Job security, there's uh, hundreds of jobs going to be involved uh, in the initial setup and then ongoing there'll be uh, further jobs. The project had been considering a desal plant site 200 kilometres further north near Wyala. Conservationists say the high salinity discharge at that site could kill the hundreds of thousands of giant cuttlefish who travel to the area every year to breed. Jeff Churchett says the proposed site at Cape Hardy has no major environmental concerns. The area that they've chosen is uh, their preferred site because of the depth of the water and the uh, amount of movement in the water. Having the depth of water in that area, it means that the um, the brine has got a lot more area to go be distributed into, yeah. Sailors at sea have been removing salt from seawater for centuries. Doing it at scale remains hugely expensive. Associate Professor Ian Wright is from Western Sydney University. It's incredibly difficult. It bas- they basically push salt water through membranes. Only the H2O molecules can get through. There's these tiny little holes and the salt can't. And just to set up a desalination plant, it starts at about a billion dollars, depending on the size, can going up to several billion. And that's just to build it because it needs 
almost thousands of kilometres, these tiny little membranes which are in really thin plastic tubes. Then once you switch it on, then the power meter starts buzzing. It needs an incredible power feed and it needs a lot of maintenance. South Australia and the eastern states all have desalination plants, but they're largely standing idle at a cost of millions of dollars a year, ready in case of severe drought. Ian Wright says SA can look to Perth, where desal plants are always running and are sending fresh water hundreds of kilometres to mining sites. Perth has actually got two desal plants currently. They are always flat out. They provide, I think, getting on for half of Perth's water, and I gather they are now looking at a third if they didn't have desal and it wasn't you know, commercially feasible to do so, I really don't know how we would have the, you know, the powerhouse of Perth and the industry it supports. I don't know how we would have survived. A final decision on the Northern Water Project is expected in the first half of 2026. Angus Randall. Australian women keep having children later and the egg freezing industry is booming. Women over the age of 30 now make up nearly 60% of births. Social media influencers are sharing their experiences with egg freezing in paid partnerships with fertility clinics targeted at young women. But health regulators warn fertility clinics may be breaking the law promoting their services in this way. Shari Hams has more. In very exciting, anxious, overwhelming news, I'm partnering up with Monash IVF, who are going to help me freeze my eggs. Melbourne-based influencer Tully Smythe has been describing her fertility journey. Sponsored by Monash IVF, one of Australia's biggest fertility providers, to her 215,000 followers. A needle is tiny, guys. If, if you've had immunisations, if you've been vaccinated for COVID, if you've ever had a tattoo or a piercing, you will be fine. It is minute. The number of women freezing their eggs tripled in the five years to 2020. Adelaide resident Ruth Neves is one of them. She says it's a bit more complicated than a piercing or COVID jab. It's hardcore, especially the amount of hormones that you pump into yourself with synthetic hormones. And so Medicare did cover a big chunk of it, still did cost me upwards of $10,000. She says Instagram didn't sway her decision, but it can be hard to avoid the egg freezing content on social media. If you're just giving it to people as a, this is what I went through, rather than a, I went through this company and you should go through them too. It's like, that's marketing. Fertility providers have been using social media influencers to promote their services in targeted advertising campaigns. But there are questions about whether some of this advertising breaches the rules against testimonials for clinical procedures. The Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency says influencers must comply with the national law when advertising a regulated health service. It says testimonials that include positive comment about a clinical aspect of care are prohibited. Lawyer Tegan Borman is an expert in social media law. Under the new guidelines, you certainly can't remunerate influencers in a way where you're providing free treatment. That would certainly breach those, those guidelines. The ABC is not suggesting that Tully Smythe is breaching the law. She did not respond to requests for comment. The company she's partnered with, Monash IVF, says the company does not believe the videos are testimonials. Perth gynaecologist Dr Tamara Hunter, who has worked for Monash IVF, says there needs to be more information out there about egg freezing for young women. Like with many elective procedures, there's a plethora of information that is available out there. And 
young women do need guidance on what and where to seek that information. I do think that anything that's testimonial-based should be discouraged. Marketing that may be effective, but in some cases illegal. Shari Hams reporting. The mother of Russia's opposition leader Alexei Navalny says she's been allowed to see her son's body but claims she's now being blackmailed by Russian officials. Alexei Navalny died in a Russian prison in the Arctic Circle a week ago. Western leaders have blamed Russian leader Vladimir Putin for his death. In an exclusive interview, a member of the exiled Russian punk rock group Pussy Riot has told the ABC alternative voices in Russia continue to be silenced and any opposition to Putin's rule has been broken. Nicole Johnston has more. Alexei Navalny's mother has lost her son. Now she says she's being blackmailed. In a video statement, Lyudmila Navalny has accused Russian authorities of pressuring her to agree to a secret funeral She's still waiting to receive her son's body. I'm recording this video because they started threatening me. Looking me in the eye, the investigators said that if I don't agree to a secret funeral, they will do something with my son's body. Nadia Tolkanikva is a Russian opposition activist and founding member of the Pussy Riot punk rock group. She believes the Russian state is worried a Navalny funeral will inspire people to protest. The Russian authorities quickly showed the body to his mother, but they're not returning the body to his mother to do the proper burial. And more than that, they're threatening her. And I think it all comes from their deep fear of Alexei Navalny. And a lot of people noted already that it's quite insane that they're afraid of Navalny, even when he is literally dead. In the US, President Joe Biden met Mr Navalny's widow, Yulia. This week, she announced she's taking up her late husband's job as an opposition leader. President Biden again blamed Russian President Vladimir Putin for Mr Navalny's death. And in even stronger language to a group of donors, President Biden called President Putin a crazy son of a bee. We're going to be announcing the sanctions against Putin who is responsible for his death. But one thing I made that was made clear to me is that uh, Yolanda is going to, she's going to continue to the fight he had underway. Russia says it's not responsible for Mr Navalny's death, that the seemingly healthy 47-year-old man died of natural causes. Asked by Russian state TV what he thinks of the son of a bee comment from the US president, Putin smiled, praised Biden and said the remark showed why the Kremlin thought Biden would be the best president for Russia's interests. Listen, you and I spoke recently and you asked me who we prefer as the future president of the United States. I said that we would work with any president, but I believe that for us, for Russia, Biden is a more preferable president. And judging by what he just said, I'm absolutely right. We understand what's happening there from a domestic political point of view. You're a Russian journalist, that's why you asked me what's best for us. I said it then, and I still believe it, and I can repeat it. Biden. Thank you. Even in death, Mr Navalny is a symbol of the grim struggle between the Russian state and its opposition. From Pussy Riot, Nadia Tolkanikva again. We've been destroyed one by one, year by year. Navalny is not just a 
a friend. It's, he's not just a political figure. He's a hope for new free Russia that is just a part of Europe. That's a normal country, not an empire. With Putin, we see Russia moving to the exact opposite direction and becoming the pariah on the world scene, and rightfully so. And obviously, it's uh, sad enough for us to lose our home, but it's even more heartbreaking to lose this hope that Navalny carried with him, even in the last three years when he already was in a Russian jail. It must be really hard for you also to try and support people during this time from afar. Uh, it's a difficult time for, for a lot of us, but I think um, the bottom line is uh, we need to do what Navalny wanted us to do, is to keep uh, fighting and keep keep being active and keep keep building the beautiful Russia of the future, this beautiful vision that he gave us. Pussy Riot founder Nadia Tolkanikva. She was speaking to Nicole Johnston. It's one small step for space exploration, but it could be a giant leap in our understanding of the moon. For the first time ever, a private company has landed on the moon. American firm Intuitive Machines has taken a US spacecraft to the moon for the first time in more than 50 years. The Odysseus lander, an uncrewed robot, is carrying a suite of instruments from NASA and it'll begin a seven-day exploration to survey the landscape. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. Three, two, one, ignition, and liftoff. Go SpaceX, go IM-1 and the Odysseus lunar lander. A week ago, Odysseus left the Kennedy Space Centre en route to the moon. Today, it made history. Uh, what an outstanding effort. I know this was a nail-biter, but we are on the, on the surface and we are transmitting. And uh, welcome to the moon. Odysseus has found his new home. There were a few moments of uncertainty as communication issues hit right on landing, but Intuitive Machines has become the first private company to land on the moon. NASA paid the firm $118 million to build and fly the lander, with some of its instruments on board. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says it shows the power of the agency's commercial partnerships. What a triumph! Odysseus has taken the moon. This feat is a giant leap forward for all of humanity. It comes only a month after another private company, Astrobotic Technology, attempted the same mission but suffered a propulsion system leak shortly after being placed in orbit. So why is NASA paying private companies to do its work? Joel Kearns is NASA's Deputy Associate Administrator for Exploration. So U.S. industry came to us and said, look, you don't have to do these missions yourself. We are, we are sharp enough that if you just pay us, we'll go do whatever you want us to do. And that's what led to what you're going to see today, which is part of what's called CLIPS, or Commercial Lunar Payload Services. That is where NASA pays a company to take our equipment, our science to the moon, down all the way down to the surface and get our data back. But this is the company's mission. They go off and make their lander. They buy a rocket. They design their mission. They get all their communications set up. We are just a paying cargo customer, really, just as if we were shipping a parcel to somebody's house. Plus, they still get the scientific data. We constructed six scientific instruments from NASA that we're paying intuitive machines to take down to the surface of the moon and operate for us and get us our data back. And those instruments are going to measure things like... Um, 
the uh, when you land on the moon, um, how do your engines blow that abrasive lunar dust around? In effect, are you sandblasting the surface when you get there? You'd like to know that before you actually do scientific studies exactly where you're landing, or if you park next to something else that you've sent before, you'd like to know if you're going to sandblast it. We're testing advanced communication technology so that we're very accurate in knowing where we land on the moon. Dr Jonathan Webb is Radio National's science editor. He says the lander was carrying a few other things too. This is what happens when it's a private moon mission. People can pay money and get their own stuff on board. I think there's a, a camera developed by uh, students in the US that's on board. And there's also an artwork by the American artist Jeff Koons. I think it's 125 little steel balls which represent the phases of the moon as seen from Earth that is also bolted onto the side of this craft. So just how monumental is it to have private companies landing on the moon? Alexandra Witsey is a journalist with the journal Nature. Nations have done it, but no company. This is a huge demonstration that the private private companies can do it. Small companies that have never built spacecraft before can pull this off. This is a big win for NASA. This is a big win for the aerospace industry. So this could be just the start of more like this to come. Alexandra Witsey from Nature magazine, ending that report by Elizabeth Cramsey. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Rachel Mealy. Stay safe. Hello, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. For more than a decade, Julian Assange has tried everything to avoid the position he finds himself in now, on the cusp of being bundled onto a plane to the US to face espionage charges. His fate now rests with a couple of judges in London. Today, media freedom advocate Peter Grester unpacks his case for us. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app.